reading from the New Living Translation, so if it's a little bit different, um, that's why. <laughs> As a large crowd was following Jesus, he turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. So I want to start off today, you know, I want to bring context to, the, to this parable because Jesus often, what he does is he begins a healing process, a physical healing, a physical miracle in order to demonstrate a lesson that he wants to teach. So let me set the stage for you right now. And first, I'm just going to do a quick prayer, and then we'll get straight into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you just to be able to gather together with my brothers and sisters virtually. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit now to speak to us through your word, Lord. Talk to us about these times in a way that is relevant for us. Help us to find meaning in your scripture that is applicable for us today, and feed us that daily bread that we so crave in our souls. In your name we pray. Amen. So bringing this back to the beginning, Jesus is at the Pharisee's house and they are throwing a feast. And amidst this feast, there's a guy who has a condition, it's called dropsy. We don't use that term nowadays. Uh, it's basically congestive heart failure where fluid begins to gather in your legs and in your extremities. And it's because your heart has become so weak that it can't uh, pump blood and circulate blood the way that a strong heart normally can. So it gathers uh, where all the gravitation pulls it. And so he's dealing with somebody in the room who has congestive heart failure. And Jesus is about to talk about a heart condition with his people. And so I just want to set the stage where here is this man who is sick. And Jesus, the healer, the physician is in the room. And not one person, not one of the Pharisees, not one of those who have witnessed his miracles has thought to think there's this man who needs healing. Jesus, you're here today. We see his condition, he's helpless. We wanna advocate for this person. But instead, when Jesus poses the question, is it lawful for a man to heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees and the teachers and the leaders in the room stay silent. But Jesus was not passive in his approach and in his healing. He was active and he actively pursued those who needed him. And so even though the man didn't even advocate for his own case, Jesus sought him out. And despite the silence in the room, Jesus healed him. And then he says, okay, now that I've healed this man, I need to talk about a heart problem that you all have. And he begins to go through this powerful lesson. And he begins to talk about first, humility. He says, when you guys both, all of you guys arrived in this room, the first thing that you guys sought out for was the best seat in the house. Well, my advice to you is to not take for yourself what is there to grab. I want you to approach my throne with humility because you're not here to impress men. You're not here to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? Hobnobbing, right? The way that we try to uh, uh, position ourselves 
with people who have influence. And he says, I'm the one whose influence you need to ask. So let's not vie for the attention and for power before men. And the next thing he begins to, to talk about is like, okay, when you throw a feast, don't invite your rich friends. Invite the poor, the blind, the lame, those who cannot repay you because your relationships have become transactional. You have begun to position yourself in networks of influence rather than seeing people as people and ministering to them. You've been looking for your recompense and your reward from the people with whom you surround yourself with and said, these people could pay you back, your friends, if you throw a feast, but throw a feast for someone who only God can pay you back for. So we're starting to reevaluate and recalibrate where they should be focused, where their eyes should be focused. But one guy, he speaks up and the lesson that Jesus is trying to give completely goes over his head because Jesus is talking about his people meeting a temporal need of the poor and the blind and the crippled. And this man speaks out and he says, isn't it going to be great when we have a feast in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is like, right, I don't think my crowd is listening. I don't think my people are starting to to understand what I'm trying to say. I'm not talking about ethereal, theoretical needs that will one day be completed in the kingdom of God, but I'm talking about the needs of the here and now. So he begins to say, I, I need to do a little more heart surgery. So he continues on this parable. He's like, there's a feast that this man throws. And of course we know that this feast is this invitation that God is giving to be a part and a partner to the feast in the kingdom of God. And he says, this man sends out an invitation and he's throwing a huge banquet. But to each person that this invitation is given, they begin to give excuses. The first person says, I've just bought some land, Jesus. I cannot come to the wedding. Another person says, I've just bought five pairs of yoke of oxen. I can't go to the wedding. Another person says, I just got a wife. I can't come. And another translation says, I'm still looking for a wife. I can't come, right? Which I think both are pretty applicable. But each person makes an excuse about why they can't make it. And so Jesus, the master of the house uh, in this parable, sends his servant out into the highways and the byways and to invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, anybody that he can find to fill up the room. Anybody who's willing to heed the invitation. And then here comes the reading that I read today. He turns to them and says, if any of you do not hate your mother and your father and your sister and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And he's not contradicting himself. In other parts of scripture, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Honor your mother, your father. Ephesians says, husbands, love your wives and your children. So this isn't about possession. This is about priority. This isn't about what we have. It's about where we place value. So today I want to talk about the five hidden costs of being a disciple. Because he then goes on to say, you know, you have to count the cost. And he goes on, you know, not only to uh, the cost of building the tower, but the cost of going to war. And then he says, if you don't give up everything you own, you cannot be my disciple. And I think, you know, the lesson and the key word here is own. 
we have to carry ourselves like sojourners in a country that is not our own. Because we do not belong to an earthly Canaan, but we belong to a heavenly Canaan. We are citizens of another kingdom. And so he wants to address this heart problem that's happening with his people who are too focused upon the here and now, too focused upon gaining by the estimations of this world, but not gaining in the kingdom of heaven. And so the first cost of the hidden cost of being a disciple is trusting God with your dreams. I think everyone right now can relate to the fact that life has been interrupted. Life is not going the way that we planned. Nobody planned for a pandemic. Nobody planned to be quarantined for five months. Nobody planned for their life and their jobs to be uh, taking a different trajectory. There are people who, who, have, who have five, 10-year plans that they have laid out and God has rudely interrupted it. And so the first lesson is trust your dreams with God. You know, it makes me think of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had waited so long for Isaac. He was a hundred years old waiting for his only son. And one day God comes to him and says, I need you to offer your son, your only son, Isaac, upon the altar of sacrifice. And he says, God, but why? I have waited my whole life for this moment. This is my only treasure, my only legacy, the only thing that I have that I'm holding within my two arms. Why would you give this to me only to take it away? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he places his dreams, the summation of his life's hope upon that altar. And what does God do? He redeems it. He substitutes the life of his son with the life of a lamb. He said, Abraham, I just needed to know that you would withhold nothing from me. You can have it all back. I just needed to know that in your heart, I was first. Same thing with the landowners, same thing with the guy with the five pair of yoke of oxen, and same thing with the wife. He wasn't trying to keep them from good things. He just needed them to allow themselves to be interrupted by God so that they could place him first in their lives. And he would have given that all back. So the first application is we have to trust God with our dreams, especially the ones that are very long to come to pass. The second thing is the hidden cost of being a disciple is vulnerability. You know, I look at these things that these people were trying to get land, a business, because usually you would have yokes of oxen in order to till the land, in order to build a farm, in order to build a business, in order to finally be somebody in your community. And I know there are some people out there, including myself, who are ready for that day to rise up out of the shackles of poverty and finally be able to do something economically, be able to purchase that house, be able to buy that car, right? They were ready for a new life. That relationship represented a new identity, a new phase, a new stage in where they wanted to be. But sometimes we use these things property, business, relationships, in a way that the giver did not intend it. That we use it to fill a hole in our hearts that only God can fill. That we use these things like an addict would use a drug. 
to get the next high, to keep our caffeine going until the next day. Ever hungry, never satisfied. And so God has to say, I can't allow you to use these things. If you do not give up everything that you own, you will continually be unsatiated. You will continually be hungry because I have not given that to you for food to eat, but I've given you my body and my flesh. And so we also begin to place our self-worth and our self-identity with the things that we gain and the people we surround ourselves with rather than who we are in God. And so the vulnerability of a circumcised heart that says, here I am with all of my needs, with all of what it means to just be human and have nothing to offer but myself. I don't have the props that cue people about how to treat me. I don't have the props of the nice house, the props of the nice car, the props of the family to cue people about how I should be treated. It's just me. And God, you have to be my covering. You have to be my head. You have to be where I get my identity and self-worth because so many people right now, including myself, are wrestling with, am I valuable if I'm not working this job? Who am I if I don't got no money? Who am I in this moment in history when God is taking away some of the props and we have to stand there naked but unashamed because Jesus and his righteousness is our clothing. And he has to move us into a place where we allow him to let us be vulnerable. And also to go through the process of what if this process is humiliating God? What if my friends and my family see me differently because I don't have the trappings of what my life was supposed to be or what I thought it was going to look like? And he says, don't worry about your defense because when you begin to defend yourself, that's when the flesh begins to form over your heart once again. Let me be your defense. I am enough. Because it's not what we get from God, it's God who is our reward. It is him who is our treasure, our beloved. And he is enough riches in our bank account to make us worth something. And if somebody doesn't see that in us, it's because they're not looking at us through the eyes of him. And that is what we are called to do. He doesn't want anything else to get in the way of the glory with which he wrapped himself or which he wraps us in. Because he says, not even Solomon in all his glory is arrayed like the lily of the field whom God clothes. And he's asking us to be a lily in the valley. You know, I, I, I digress a little bit when it comes to the vulnerability because one of my favorite books is the Song of Solomon. And he talks about his beloved as a lily in the valley. That amidst the muck and the mire, amidst the struggle and the torrent, amidst the mud of what all the sediments that gather into the valley below, that this spotless lily arises. And that who is who he has called us to be, that when we are in the valley of our souls, when we are in the valley of our journey of faith, he can rise us up above our situations and keep us spotless and beautiful. 
and that we become a point of beauty among somebody else's journey in the valley. Because he shows us a way out and he clothes us with his righteousness. And somebody else in the midst of their storm can look at us and say, I want that too. So let him clothe you, beloved. Vulnerability, the cost of discipleship, trusting God with your dreams, vulnerability to not let things take the replace of, the, of God and the way that he desires to wrap you. A third point of the cost, the hidden cost of discipleship is limited visibility. God, be thou my vision because I cannot see my way ahead. And this is a time that is especially frustrating when I think about myself. My biggest struggle is I want to know the turn by turn direction. I wanna be able to put this in my Google Maps. I wanna be able to lay it out. I wanna know turn by turn where I'm going, Jesus. I'm somebody who loves the mountaintop experience. I need that. I need to know where I'm headed. And so I wanna be able to make the five-year plan. Lord, I gotta be a good steward of my time. I gotta be a good steward of my intellect. I gotta be a good steward and I can't do that if I don't know where I'm going. So I pray and I've prayed this many times, God send just the directions from heaven down into my mailbox, under my pillow, wherever you wanna bring it. And tell me what you want from me. Who do I need to be? Where do I need to go? How do I spend my time? And I get frustrated that he doesn't give me these very direct answers that I say, I wish I could do this. I, I, I would be so much more effective. But he knows, he knows us, beloved. He knows us. Have you ever driven somewhere that you've driven to a hundred times and you just forgot how you even got there? You're like, oh, how did I get here? Because you checked out along the way. You were, you, you've driven that path so many times you don't even need to think about it anymore. You can probably literally go to sleep in your mind and your body will just get you there. And God's like, I can't allow our relationship to be this way. And if I tell you the turn-by-turn -turn directions, that might be an excuse for you to turn off your mind. But I need your heart, mind, and soul. I need all of you to be in this journey with me. I need you to wrestle with me like Jacob. I need you to be in the storm. I need you to be present. I need you to be asking. And I need you to be in the moment. I need you to want to hear my voice every day because if we knew the five-year plan, will we talk to him all that much? Because it's not the destination, it's the journey. It's not where we're going, it's who we're going with. And if we're not going with him, like Moses said, why are we going? You know, I think about uh, uh, the man born blind. Again, Jesus often uses a physical healing to teach a lesson. He heals the blind man. And the Pharisees say, do you, are you making a statement that, that we're blind? Jesus says, if you, saw, if you said that you were blind, there would be no guilt. But because you say you see you're blind. When we come to Jesus blind, knowing our deficiencies, knowing that we cannot see, he gives us vision. But when we are so stuck in our own plans, thinking that we're being so smart and we know the five-year plan, he says, you're blind because you don't have me leading you. So as in the parable in Luke chapter 14, 
the landowner, the business owner, the relationship, they had already set their own mind and focus about what they wanted, about what their future was supposed to look like. And they were unwilling to let God recalibrate what that vision should be. Also, another part that's very difficult with the limited vision is the weight, the uncertainty. And I think so many people right now are in their moment of waiting, waiting upon God to do a miracle, waiting upon God for the next, uh, next month's rent, right? Waiting upon God in this, in this place that's uncomfortable, waiting upon God to fulfill their dreams. But there is something in the weight that cannot be birthed any other way. There is something between the crucifixion on Friday at sundown and the resurrection on Sunday morning. There is something in the weight when those disciples realized this Messiah is not the Messiah I thought he was going to be. There was something birthing in that process when their hopes were crushed, when their expectations were torn down about who Jesus was supposed to be to them. There was something in that weight as they allowed their souls to be crushed and God to give them a new vision and a new expectation for their life. If they did not go through that hour of darkness waiting upon God to give an answer, they would not be prepared to go with the new message that Jesus implanted upon their hearts when he resurrected Sunday morning and said, go tell the world. Sometimes the weight is God's way of allowing expectations and, and hopes that he did not implant in us to die. Say, beloved, this is not what I had planned for your life. Let it go. I know you're drinking from this well and the water is sweet, but it's salt water and it's killing you. Let it go. The fourth hidden cost of being a disciple is interruptions. Jesus was never impatient. Jesus was never interrupted. He had his sleep interrupted, his meals interrupted. Every part of his journey was an interruption. And God is not afraid to interrupt your life because it says, and he knows that Jesus, he is coming like a thief in the night. There will be seldom of us who will be in pious prayer, kneeling, waiting, knowing that Jesus is arriving any moment now, and he comes. Most of us will be in the middle of something. We will have had plans laid out. We will have a life that we envision, things that we hope still to accomplish. And here Jesus comes. So he allows these little interruptions to come into our life, to test whether or not what we are building is upon the rock Jesus Christ or if it's upon sand. Do we know where we are building our foundations? So he allows a little shaking. He allows us to be interrupted. He allows our plans to, to fail and to be thwarted and to be delayed, to allow us the pause that we need in our go, go, go society, the pause that we need to say, Lord, is this from you? Lord, am I building on the foundation, on the rock that is eternal? These are questions that we only get in the pause and while we wait and while we allow him to interrupt our lives so that when the day comes and he does come like a thief in the night, we are not caught off guard. We are ready. And I think about the story 
of Jairus. And he comes to Jesus and his daughter is about to die. And he says, teacher, healer, savior, my daughter is about to die. Please come quickly. And Jesus goes slowly. He takes his time and he is surrounded by a crowd. And so it says that he moves painfully slow because the people are pressing him on every side. And then he stops and he says, who touched me? And Peter never at, at a loss for words says, what do you mean who touched you, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus is like, Peter, this is different. I can feel virtue leaving me. Somebody has taken a hold upon me with the grip of faith that I recognize, and it's a touch like no other. Somebody touched me. And Jesus pauses, and, and Jairus at this time, he's impatient, and he's like, Jesus, my daughter is about to die. Why are you taking your time? And he makes the question, who touched me? And a woman from the crowd emerges, shy, but afraid that she's been found out because she knows that in her body she's been healed. And she stops and she tells her life story of how she went from physician to physician to physician. Jesus took his time. He allowed himself to be interrupted. He heard her story and he says, your faith has healed you. And then he continues on his way. But by the time he gets to the house where the daughter lives, she's dead. There are professional wailers outside weeping. And Jairus must be thinking, it's too late. If only he would have not making that stop. If only he wouldn't have allowed himself to be interrupted. My daughter may have been living. My daughter would be alive today. But Jesus, undaunted by death and by the task at hand, he walks into this room. Because death is no match for Jesus. And so even if you think your interruptions and the way that God has delayed your life, that your dreams have died, that the plans that you have are dead, God walks into that room and he is able to resurrect to life. And that's what he did with this child. He brought her back from the slumber of sleep because death is no match for the king of kings and him who conquered death. So even if there is delay in our progress, even if the things that we thought were going to happen are no longer on the table, God knows how to resurrect the dead. So there is no fear in God taking his time. Because along the process of interruptions, the process of blessing people along the journey, there is a more holistic picture that's being painted for our lives. And finally, but not last, you know, is the final cost of discipleship is imperfection. You know, these people, the landowner, the business owner, the relationship, they were hoping to put the crowning jewel upon their life. Finally, they've gotten to a, a phase in their life where they're finally going to be flying high. They're finally going to be in a place where they've always dreamed to be. They're finally going to be perfect. I had a story that God had brought to me recently 
that I feel like is a great illustration for not becoming too comfortable and looking for this type of perfection, this type of our life finally getting to this place where we've always hoped it to be. So I walked outside of my house one morning and there was a little bird who could not fly. And I'm watching this bird and he is hopping along the ground and he's taking flight for a few seconds and he's hitting the ground. And I notice that it's a little bird, it's a baby bird. And I, you know, I, I like animals and I have a little dog and I used to have all kinds of animals growing up. I, I take compassion on this animal and I'm like, there are cats around. He's not gonna make it. This man, he's gonna die. So I've gotta help him. I get the savior complex, right, of thinking, I must save this bird who has crossed my path and only I will be able to save this little one. And I go and I find it and, and I scoop it up into my little hands and I can feel his weight. And he's definitely a little chunkier than I, than I thought he would be. Uh, I was like, this bird's a little heavy. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, what am I gonna do with this bird? I don't have a cage. I don't have any bird seeds. Like, what's the plan here, okay? Like, I, I'm like, do I plop him in a Tupperware? Like, this is just not gonna work. So I have this bird in my hand and I'm Googling, what do you do when you find a baby bird? And uh, I see, uh, I read this article and it's like, if you find a baby bird who can't fly, they're called fledglings. Some of you may already know this. Um, I know, I've probably disregarded every Animal Planet show that I probably should have watched. Um, these baby birds are called fledglings. They're not yet ready to fly, but they're still under the mother's care. And in the distance, I saw a mother bird looking at me and I was like, okay, I think that's mama. Let me just put you down. Let me just let you do your thing because uh, I'm interrupting the course of nature here. But I read some interesting things in that article because it said the nest is not a safe place to be because there are parasites that can develop in that nest and can kill the baby birds. And the nest is also a target for predators because you have these loud baby birds crying out for their mother and they become a target. So it's the mother's job to get them out of the nest as quickly as possible. And though they may not be perfectly equipped to fly, they are safer in their fledgling state than they would be in that nest. And so the application for myself is we can't allow ourselves to be in the comfort zone for too long. When we get into that place where we think that we're just all cushy and things are going well and we don't have to change a thing, that's when the parasites of hard-heartedness and sin develop. Where we become a target of Satan. And so God has to do his best to throw us out of that nest. And even though we might not be perfect in the flight, we will get there. Even though we might be fledgling and struggling and say, I'm not there yet. I'm not where I want to be. I'm in transition, but I'm better off than I was being in my comfort zone. There is growth to be had. You will fly one day, but this is a necessary part of the journey and to not be ashamed when you are in your fledgling state because the fledglings are still looked over by the father. And so being comfortable and, and the people in the parable, they were not willing to get uncomfortable. They were not willing to take a transition that would um, impact them economically, financially, socially, even in their familial ties. How will I explain this to my family? How will I explain this to my friends? How will I explain this to my community that I'm making such a drastic shift in my life? that I'm gonna be poor for the next few years as I transition myself out of this. And they were not willing to be fledglings. 
So the cost of discipleship is being willing. So number one, you know, trusting your dreams with God. Number two, vulnerability, allowing him to be your covering. Allowing him to be what fills you and where you get your identity and self-worth. Number three, limited visibility. Being okay with only getting the day-to-day -day plan. He's not going to tell you the five, what you're going to need to be a disciple five years from now. He's not going to tell you the cost that you're going to have to pay in 10 years. He's going to tell you the cost for today. And then he'll tell you the cost tomorrow for tomorrow. And it's a day-by-day -day plan as much as we want the 10-year, 20-year plan. We have to be okay with interruptions for God to come in and check the foundations on which we've built our life and say, are you building upon the rock? Do you want to take a pause to reevaluate where you are standing today? And five, being okay with incompletion and imperfection. Being okay with the process and not being so focused on the destination. And so as we consider the cost of discipleship, knowing that there was no cost that Jesus spared for us. There was no cost that he wouldn't give to retrieve us. In fact, the pouring of the alabaster box where the disciples said, look what waste. The angels could have looked at the sacrifice of Jesus and said, what waste, because it was more than enough. It was abundantly overflowing for all of humanity. He considered the cost of what it meant to leave father and mother and his community to come down and to be with us. And what are we willing to give to enter into that relationship? And we all know whatever that personal cost may be today. So I wanna invite you to trust him because there is beauty in that journey. There is joy unmatched in that journey. There is love undeniable in that journey. There is security and peace unlike anything this world can offer in that journey. So no matter what the cost we have to pay, it's worth it. And you're worth it. He's worth it. Thank you. There is